4: Wednesday morning, the 8th of December. Good morning. With much debate and discussion from now till 11am, this is Michael Reid on LMFM. Independent TDs, Sean Canney and Catherine Connolly, together with Aintoo's Padre Tobin, have launched a bill which would establish a commission of investigation into how COVID-19 was managed in nursing homes.
3: The majority of people who died in this state during COVID actually caught COVID in a hospital or in a nursing home. Indeed, over 2,000 people died after contracting COVID in a nursing home. Many of their families are deeply distressed and want to know the truth of what happens to them. Nursing homes were kept open to visitors longer than nursing homes wanted to. There was a surge of 10,000 patients from hospitals into nursing homes you, in the first half of 2020. Many of them weren't tested. Will the government support the INTO bill for a commission of investigation into nursing homes?
4: Peter Tobin speaking in the Dáil yesterday. He made those points to the Taoiseach, Micheál Martin.
5: To, I'm not of a view right now that a commission of investigation is the best model um, to to evaluate um, how this country did in respect of, of COVID-19. But what I'm intrigued about is that even before we establish it, you've clearly set your own terms of reference as to who you're going to apportion blame to, which is, which is characteristic of a lot of approaches in the House. Uh, okay, thank you
6: very much.
4: The absence of that any objectivity in advance of an that, investigation that is quite special. striking. You know? Let's talk uh, to A Toos, Peter Tobin, who's on the line. And good morning to you, and thanks uh, for joining us on uh, the programme this morning. The Taoiseach does have a point, doesn't he? Looking at uh, what you want to be investigated, you have already apportioned blame, haven't you?
3: Well, first of all, this is a very, very serious issue. Uh, many people, in, I know, in County Mead and in Louth, uh, have lost loved ones.
4: But if you apportion blame before investigating what happened, you're doing a disservice to those people, are you not?
3: That's not the case. In every commission of investigation, the terms of reference are written before the investigation. So you can't have an investigation unless you give guidance to the people who are carrying out the investigation on what issues to investigate. And it's as clear as day that there were certain actions that were taken that have led to serious difficulties. And they are the actions that should be uh, investigated because
4: well you know, it 's clear uh, that there's no need for an investigation then because you 've already made the point that it 's uh, the fault of the hse it 's the fault of NEFIT and it 's the fault of government
3: well the, the reason for a commission' investigation is that there is institutional learning within the within the organizations that are meant to protect people. The reason for investigation is not that you and I can have a conversation, but it's that the necessary changes can happen in nursing homes and in hospitals, so that people don't die in such massively large numbers. Remember, more people died in the last two years, of co- who caught COVID in a nursing home or hospital, than in any other institutional setting since the foundation of the state. Now we are really good and proper proper order. Or so, in looking back at the mother and baby homes and other institutions and seeing what happens there, because it's important to find justice and truth for those people.
4: Okay, but, but you are want
3: we wait, are we going to wait 50 years? Well, is it to have not an uh, investigation into what's
4: is, what is? Is it true or otherwise to say that you would hope that a commission of investigation into how COVID was handled in nursing homes would apportion blame to the HSE, NEFET and the government? No,
3: what what I'm asking the commission of investigation to very clearly investigate is the decisions that were made around the nursing homes in March 2020 wanted to close their doors to visitors. A government decision said, no, don't close your door to visitors and allowed visitors to circulate for another month in those nursing
4: homes. OK, so we've gover- that. Go- government that. government That's enough that. in the loop here, OK.
3: And also 10,000 patients were moved from uh, hospitals into nursing homes.
4: That brings hospitals. the HSE in, Yeah.
3: Like, if you're going to have an investigation into what happened in nursing okay. homes and so, leave so, agency... So you're a judge and jury? How, how in the name of God are you going to investigate it?
4: Well, you, invest, you, you, don't, you, you don't come to a conclusion before you investigate. That's no, exactly what I'm the Taoiseach was I, saying I, to you.
3: I'm asking them to investigate these actions. Like, for example...
4: Ah, OK. okay you're that, that, that's different then.
3: Yeah, Ty Daly asked... Ty Daly is the head of Nursing Home Ireland and he asked to meet with uh, Simon Harris uh, right in the middle of the crisis and weeks went past and Simon Harris didn't meet him. Stephen Donnelly, actually, he he was the opposition spokesperson at the time, and he said that the HSC intercepted, that's his words, PPE, oxygen and staff from the nursing homes and kept them to the hospitals. I'd like that investigated. And also there was a major problem with staffing. Do you
4: mean investigated or confirmed?
3: I, 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 you, if you if you want to change the words that I'm using every time, you can, Michael, but the words that I'm using is clearly... No,
4: I want to understand you're what you're trying to do that. here because the Taoiseach is saying that, uh, well, to, to uh, interpret what the Taoiseach was saying, he seems to be saying that you're trying to use this as an opportunity, which was a terrible thing, which saw the loss of many lives. Uh, some of those lives may have been lost unnecessarily. Uh, but you're s- using it as a, an opportunity to have a, a pop at the HSE, Neffitt and the government.
3: Unfortunately, I believe that Taoiseach doesn't want these investigators because he, his, if you listen to his answer carefully, he says, that's not the solution that I would prefer. He doesn't offer any solution. He doesn't say, well, I would rather we carry okay. an investigation into X, Y, and Z. Well, stay, stay,
4: stay no, with us for a moment, sure. uh, because Fergus O'Dowd, gay LTD for Loud and East, may joins us. And I think it's true to say, Fergus O'Dowd, you want a commission of investigation into what happened in nursing homes. Uh, would you want one in line with uh, what's being proposed here?
5: Well, I think I've been speaking to a number of different organisations, and I understand that some people have been speaking to say that in Australia, as an example, their commission of inquiry or investigation, I don't have the exact words of what it actually was called, looked at a number of different nursing homes, ones which had high incidence of death, and ones which were average and ones which were obviously you know, there were no people passed away at all. In other words, that, that you're trying to learn from what happened, but you also need to look at the ones and the ones like Dargan House, for instance, and lead its own inquiry. Um so I think I think we should use this time now um to consult with everybody as to what the inquiry should be. Um and I think by talking to families, by talking to professionals in the field, by talking to politicians, uh, you know, and, and by doing appropriate research, we should be in the position hopefully in the new year to have a form of inquiry that we've taught it through that isn't judgmental as it's been set up, but does but which hopefully would make findings as to, as to some of the appalling events that did undoubtedly happen.
4: And there's a lot of truth in what Peter Tobin says, and course, a lot of yep. fault lies with government, NEFID and the HSE.
5: I don't, I, don't, I don't doubt that at all. But it, uh,
4: is, is that scope too narrow?
5: Well, I, I think this is the issue, you see. Like, if you have an inquiry into every single nursing home into every action of NEFID into every action of the government, you'll be there for twenty years. And you still won't get an answer. So, what they did in this other jurisdiction, in Australia, is that they narrowed it down, and that's what I think we need to do. We need to, what outcomes do we want? What is the best learning that comes out of it? And clearly, if blame has to be apportioned, apportioned and I believe blame has to be apportioned—sorry, apportioned it has to be done appropriately and you know with, with the proper inquiries. The difficulty is if you're to start that today. There's a lot of healthcare staff are out sick. Nursing homes are at the pin of the collar again. Thankfully, the numbers of certain infections are down with the new the new variant. Uh, so I think if we think it through and and act, you know, by consulting now and have our inquiry, I think that would make the most sense. But I definitely want an inquiry into everything that happened at Dalkin House because there are very, very serious questions there. Appalling issues have arisen there. And I think that needs a separate inquiry. And I know there are three or four other nursing homes in the country that need that as well. But I think you'd be consulted across the board on it and that we can all go forward. Governments and opposition, the whole lot. Like, let the blame fall where it must. But let's get the truth. And let's not have an inquiry that's going to cost millions and it's going on for years. So is, it
4: a, my is it a question of truth or a question of blame, Powder Tobin? Uh, because uh, I'm sure some bad decisions were made and those decisions have to be looked at, do they not, in the context that the decisions were made uh, when we were all chasing our tail in a state of panic, uh, expecting that the world was about to end and the sky was about to fall in. uh, And people did their best, did they not? And now to turn around and tell them that they have blood on their hands uh, doesn't seem very fair if that's what a commission of investigation would end up saying to them.
3: Well, I I welcome uh, what Fergus has said there. And and in fairness to Fergus, he has been consistent over the last year in relation to raising situations that have happened in nursing homes. And, And even in my own constituency, I can think of Mary Bartley Meehan uh, and the terrible situation where she lost both her husband uh, and her son in a nursing home uh, in the county um, to COVID, and, and in, in absolutely shocking circumstances as well. And the, it, it, it's a very simple thing: these people deserve the truth. They deserve to know what happened uh, to their families. Why did it happen? And then the state needs to know. The health service needs to know how we make sure that this doesn't happen again. That is the primary objective of the commission of inquiry. And actually typically commissions of inquiry don't often lay a uh, personal blame uh, on individuals uh, in relation to, to what happened uh, in, the, in the past. They typically look to see where was the breakdown in the systems uh, that led to the difficulties. So for example, as I mentioned before, there was, there was staff in nursing homes going on Facebook, going on Twitter, pleading for staff, pleading for help. There was two staff in, in the, the Nightingale nursing home in Galway who were on duty for 48 hours in contact with the HSE and, and not getting any response from the HSE. At the same time, Mary Butler, who was the, the Minister for Older People, wrote a letter to the CEO that wasn't responded to for a month. The, the head of HICWA was writing letters to HSE with regards to the lack of staff that wasn't being responded. And yet we had the Minister set up the Beyond Call for Ireland, which recruited 70,000 people um, to work in the front line of the health services during this crisis, and only ever 400 of those people were ever actually employed. So we had this massive resource of people that were never employed uh, in the health service at a time of greatest need. And and this issue is not completely over as well. If you look in the health service, in hospitals, in nursing homes, in homes for people with disabilities and women's refuges, there's still a high number of outbreaks happening in those locations. Actually, you're you're twenty times more likely to have an outbreak in a hospital than you are in a pub, according to the figures in the last four weeks, which is, is, is startling. And that's why I believe it's important that we learn from this now, because now is the time the information is going to help us save lives in the future.
4: Okay. Uh, Is there not political point scoring, though, in what you're suggesting in terms of uh, government funding before COVID, uh, in terms of uh, the amount of nursing homes that uh, are in private hands now rather than public hands? Are are, are those questions really relevant uh, to what happened in the nursing homes and would it have been any different otherwise?
3: I suppose that there are the terms of reference that I have suggested, and I'll be honest, I'll be, I would welcome other terms of reference if people want to, to input. And as I think Fergus is right. We should actually talk to uh, all the stakeholders in relation to this. And indeed, most of the terms of references that I've, I've included here actually come from the Oireachtas Committee on Health, which studied this and spoke to stakeholders and themselves actually came up with issues that need to be investigated. Um, but you know, there, there are very clear decisions that had enormous consequences. Uh, and those decisions in, it, at times were about resources, but at times weren't about resources, and both needs to be investigated. 70,000 people I know of nurses that came home from Australia on the Be On Call for Ireland, who were here a month or two and were frustrated that they just... They, What had they come home for? They had come home to to go to the coalface of the health service to protect people's lives, and nobody had employed them. And I was reading headlines of the newspapers on a weekly basis saying that there was an extreme shortage in in staffing in the health services and in nursing homes. And I was talking to the the recruitment process, and they were saying that they were getting no requests for extra staff to go into these places. So human beings make decisions. We need to see where the decisions went wrong, to make sure that it doesn't happen again.
4: Okay. What about that last point? Uh, The Ireland on call uh, recruitment campaign that never transpired, Fergus, I doubt.
5: Well, I I would be very happy if that was inquired into. Mm -hmm. I don't have a problem. You could have... And the Iraqis committee reconstituted. I sat on the first one. I'd be happy to sit on another one. Uh, to look at issues uh, in relation to administrative processes and administrative decisions, I have no issue with that, and I think that would be helpful. But I'm looking at a report, for instance. What I'm really concerned about is the nightmare situation where people died unnecessarily, I believe, weren't looked after, because there was no staff. Mm. There was nobody. I'm reading a quick report here coming from Dagen. No capacity to transfer phones, no GP Mm. or medical support. Haven't got the facilities to give subcutaneous or IV fluids. Uh, become increasingly difficult to manage the situation residents are becoming anxious cleaners are needed rooms have signs sanitised but in ancient times they don't appear clean and so on just a nightmare hmm. an absolute nightmare
4: and the Easter weekend the nursing home calling the Minister for Health uh, Simon Harris at the time and uh, the Chief yeah. Medical Officer Tony Houlihan uh, and and uh, by all accounts, their feeling, They're at least, was questions. that they were completely uh, abandoned. And there are very serious questions uh, right. about Jalgan House, about, uh, Mary Bartley Mean, and others. And there's no doubt, uh, and they stand out. Generally speaking, though, if we leave those uh, sure. specific questions aside, uh, do you think it was... Any different generally for nursing homes here than it was for nursing homes elsewhere? Because it, it seemed to be a problem right across the world because of we the age know, and yeah. the makeup and the underlying illnesses and so on uh, that people in nursing homes have.
5: Well, we didn't know in the beginning how it was transmitted. We all lived in fear. You were afraid to go outside the mm. door. People over 70 were advised not to go out at all. Not at all. Mm. I mean, we all know what happened. And obviously, people, fantastic people in the health services, the ambulance service, get fantastic cover and care. And there were a large number of nursing homes who were really top class, there's no doubt about that. But there were ones that weren't. And, you know, I don't think, you know, I accept what you're saying, Michael, that we didn't know what was the outcome going to be, but we knew we knew that we didn't have enough staff, we knew that there wasn't enough. You know, the relationship between private, I wrote to the head of HICWA, I have a letter if I can send you anytime at the very beginning of March of 2020, telling him that 18% of all nursing homes of the that they tested, they tested 250 nursing homes before the COVID came. And 18% of them uh, didn't have appropriate care in place for infection control. Mm.
4: I remember Just talking it, to you about it, that, it, yeah. In Malaysia,
5: and, it, and, yeah. And that's the point. The point yeah. was that there were lessons which were unlearned, which they knew about at the time, and right. they didn't act. Mm-hmm.
3: If I can, um, doc- Dr. David Nabarro from the uh, WHO uh, did say that Ireland was at the upper end of the spectrum when it comes to deaths in nursing homes. And he's a special envoy okay. from the WHO. And okay. um, so, you know, while other countries definitely, Sweden is another country that suffered badly in nursing homes, Ireland was at the, at, at the high end of the spectrum with regards to uh, deaths. I, I would be a little bit cautious in that the focus of this would just be on particular staff within nursing homes, uh, etc. Um, because I, I tell you, I, I spoke to staff who were crying on the phone to me, me during this crisis and uh, who couldn't get any help whatsoever who were you know on 24-hour shifts pleading on facebook for somebody to come in and help them uh, in in those situations uh, i think it'd be wrong to overemphasize um, the role that staff had in this staff really did the best they could uh, in these scenarios but i do believe that they were let down by people on you know uh, with very very high wages who have high responsibility uh, in state organizations and I do believe that we need to have accountability and uh, there needs to be uh, accountability for example the, the, when, when the nursing homes start to close Okay but those
4: people wouldn't be responsible for a lack of infection control
3: Would be, uh, First of all you can't have an infection clo- control if you, any, you don't have any staff so, so if you have two staff on the go for 48 hours in a nursing home no, I know. Of, of of 60 patients... I know, but
4: I I, I, I don't think that was uh, what Fergus O'Dowd meant when he, he was talking about uh, those uh, compliance rates because uh, I followed a, a HICWA inspection uh, which yeah, would have been yeah. pre pre It was that the staff yeah. weren't yeah, trained yeah, yeah, and the work yeah, wasn't yeah, done.
5: Yeah, yeah. And the point mm. was if it had to have been mm. done and if they had
4: that then... In line with government regulations. Uh, yeah, uh, in line with their own regulations. Yeah, OK.
5: They didn't even inspect for their own regulations. OK, but... They only I, did they, they'd only have the nursing homes and they knew they were heading into this crisis.
4: Okay, but having said all of that, uh, the Taoiseach yeah. uh, wouldn't support uh, this bill yesterday. That was clear when he spoke to Padgett O'Bean. Uh, I'm getting a different impression from you that... In uh, principle, you'd be in support of, of the bill. Uh, maybe some amendments to the terms of, of reference, or, or or is that a, an incorrect interpretation?
5: Well, I haven't read the bill. That's the first point. Right. Uh, I was in the dog yesterday, but I had I had meetings with two other ministers, as it happened, about another issue locally in Drogheda. But uh, I I I don't have an issue if we all consult with each other across the board. To get our commission of inquiry or a public, whatever we need, but it must be focused, it must be clear, it must be practical, and we, you know, we must consult with everybody. And it can't go on for years, and it can't cost a fortune. We must get at the nub of the issue, what the failures were, what the good things were, and that we all move forward as a result of that. Many people. I mean, let's not forget that many people lost their family members. They couldn't even hold their hand as they died. They could only see them through a closed window in many cases. Mm-hmm. So like, that's just huge human yeah. suffering here. Okay. And families need closure.
4: And I'm going to wrap up now. Padish O'Bain, you said uh, you were flexible and willing to work with people. Maybe there's a starting point.
3: Yep. no, absolutely. Okay. And, you know, this bill, if it gets past first stage in a Dole, it will then go into committee uh, committee stage. And uh, after second stage, obviously, it will go into committee stage and at that stage, uh, people will be able to make amendments to terms of reference and to, to, to the bill. The most important thing is, it's is not the fine detail of this bill, the most important thing is that the thousands of families in the state who've lost loved ones in the most horrific uh, circumstances know what happens uh, and can be confident that it won't happen again.
4: OK, thanks to both of you for joining us on the programme this morning. That's uh, Patrick O'Bean, founder and leader of uh, the aint 2 Party, a TD in Meath West and Fergus O'Dowd, a Fine Gael TD for Louth and East Meath.
3: Michael Reed on LMFM.
4: Well, it is two years this month uh, since uh, the virus was first discovered in Wuhan. It came here, of course, in March of 2020, and with that came... The first of the lockdowns and many services uh, were closed uh, for a period of time. One of uh, those services, as you've been hearing this morning, has not reopened. Uh, let's speak to Imelda Munster Sinn Féin, TD for Louth and East Mead, about Strutton House. A uh, very good morning to you and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. a uh, service that provided uh, invaluable respite care to some of our, our listeners. Uh, why has it not reopened, do you know?
7: Well, that's that's the problem, Mike. That's what we're trying to find out, and that's why I've been in contact with the minister since last April. And there was a, a phased resumption of respite services, you know, centre based ones like Shohan House for people with disabilities in, in July um, 2020, and there was no re- new restrictions that closed respite services since then up until the current wave. But in between, I've been writing to the Minister constantly about it because there's, there's roughly 55 um, people as opposed to service users that use the, the, the respite services in Shrohan House and there's been little to no communication with those p- people as to when it's reopening or the indeed the future of Shrohan House and it's been extremely unfair um, leaving them in limbo like this. They're very frustrated and very angry. And they seem to be getting nowhere. And their biggest fear, I suppose, is that um, you know it's an attempt under the guise of the pandemic to actually close it down. You know, because you'll probably remember the big campaign a couple of years ago when the HSE did try to close the service down, and there was a very public campaign. So the the people using the service. are aware of that and they think, you know, that it's another attempt to close the service down under the guise of the pandemic because we're getting absolutely no information. I was glad that the Minister, um I spoke to her last week, um, she said she'd arranged to hold a meeting in Shroughton House um, to see exactly what's going on. But we want, we want some sort of cast-iron guarantee, you know, once services start to resume after the current surge, that it will be open, mm. you know, and that there' there'll there be no more stalling and and we'll have a concrete answers
4: okay, and the respite uh, that uh, would have been offered to people would uh, be uh, relatively high dependent people, I think
7: well th- there'll be a mixture, but uh, there, it would be there' be a certain amount of high dependency um cases, but uh, there's there's quite a mixture involved, but for many of them, it's the only time that they would get respite. And the funny thing is, you know, even during the campaign two years ago, not one single person that I spoke to that uses Schrohenhaus ever had a bad word to say about it. They're 100% complimentary of the staff and of the service. In fact, they loved it. And it was it was literally their only respite, whether they got it a couple of times a year, and they looked forward to it. And it was a kind of a community thing they all said you know where they'd meet up and they'd have maybe days out or that sort of thing together. You know it was something mm. they look forward to um, throughout the year. Well, of and course, because it it's a
4: it's a, a, it's a, a break uh, which doesn't yeah. come otherwise, and uh, people know uh, that when they care for loved ones uh, most often who have physical or sensory disabilities, mm. that it, it's something that is around the clock. Uh, it doesn't yeah, yeah. stop at half five in the evening or five o'clock on a Friday evening yeah, or anything like that. And there is no break. So when you get the, idea, the, the, the opportunity to get some respite for that person that they go in and maybe spend a day or a couple of days or a week, uh, it gives mm. you a chance to recharge your batteries and to continue with that level of care
7: exactly and the whole family benefits from it it's not just the person using the respite center the entire family and their carers
4: well i think the family and the carers probably benefit from it more uh, than the person themselves
7: yes because it gives them that little bit of respite you know and as you Mm. said to charge the batteries again and get you know just to have some rest and a little break away but two years ago when they were were attempting to close the service um, the people using the service were offered um, one example was a house in Rosscommon that has since closed. Another was told they could go to a house in Sligo that was run by multiple cirrhosis um, and there was also the notion put in of that they could avail of respite places in nursing homes and that 's the biggest fear um of the unknown here with Shohan House when there'll be a reopening date. Um, and the, the future around it—that they're going to be offered places in nursing homes—and what are they to do in a nursing home? Mm. You, you know, what's the options left in a bed for a full day, or put in front of the telly to sit and watch the telly for the full day? Nursing homes are mm. no um, substitute for you know the respite services that cater for people with physical and sensory disabilities. But what, you know, what has happened? Not—it's disgraceful. Like if that is mm. the case.
4: But what has happened since March 2020?
7: Well, absolutely nothing because there's of, no alternative. Uh, there's no yeah, there's no communication and that's why I mean I was persistent in just constantly writing to the minister and then when I got talking to her last week and she seemed kind of alarmed because um she had said too about other respite services reopening since July twenty twenty, you know, mm. and I said, Well that's the thing, we just not there's just no answers for it coming and that's why I was going through the minister. Because she's the minister responsible for disabilities, that you know, for her to take charge of it mm. and find out exactly what's happening
4: but, but you, 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 you use the term service providers uh, and service users uh, which is uh, the language uh, so what about the service users uh, uh, when they write to the service providers in other words when the families write to the hse or to shrutton house or whoever it is uh, that is uh, their point of contact what communication has there been about when respite will be made available to them either in shrutton house or somewhere else
7: nothing 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 is what I've been told. That's why they're so angry and frustrated. I mean, a couple of weeks ago they were asking me about um, would they organise a protest at the doll, you know, and um, that's how angry they are. That's how frustrated they are. Um, And they know of other places that have reopened since, you know, Mm. since July 2020 and nothing for them whatsoever. And they don't want to go to nursing homes. They don't want to go to the other end of the country. The service is there. And if it's not suitable, all of a sudden, you know, there's talk that um, it has been deregistered. Now, the Minister's going to check that out again to see. But when was that? Because Mm. when it reopened after the campaign, was that done under the the guise
4: of the pandemic? But This is a Minister in the Department of Health. Surely she can just ask her officials or ask her officials ask the HSE... what has the HSE well, said about is,
7: it? The, nothing. Oh, Any response right, okay. I got back from the minister that was forwarded from our office was um, that it's it's be it's getting attention, and we'll be in touch in due course. It's getting attention. We'll be in ju- touch in due course. This sort of thing, and then one was that um, I've been informed that the HSC or by the HSE that loud disability services continues to hear to public advice in respect of social distancing. And this was in November, and they said that the current location doesn't allow for safe services to be delivered. But, I mean, if other areas had opened up since July 2020, but even if that is the case in the current surge, why is there no communication Mm -hmm. with the people that use the service? And if that is the case, and I hope to God it's not, you know, if House. You know, if they're intending on closing it down Mm. again or attempting to attend, then they have to provide an alternative before they do that in this county. Well, people will accept
4: explanations, or at least they'll Mm. accept reasonable explanations. uh, But when there's no communication, it is terribly frustrating. I couldn't understand. It's desperate. It's desperate
7: because, as I said, it's the only respite. Yep these people and their families get and to be left in limbo it's just grossly unfair it's
4: so important grateful. it's so yeah, important yeah. not just yeah. physically but mentally to everybody and yeah, uh, absolutely that, yeah. that, that's yeah. a, a, a big amount of people per person uh, who would avail of uh, the respite for yes. that matter. and when
7: you're mm-hmm. speaking to people you know some of them tell you about the the Mental effect it's having on yeah. their well being, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. that they nothing to look forward to. We're yeah. stuck, still stuck in this pandemic and they've actually nothing to look forward oh. to. No,
4: it's sold you know, destroying. So I'm sure. So it's for a vital
7: service, yeah. yeah. yeah
4: absolutely. Yeah. Okay, well, look, we, we'll ask the HSE for comment on yeah. it and we'll come back to this uh, in uh, the coming days. Uh, but thank Great. you indeed uh, for joining thank us you. this morning. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, that's uh, Sinn Féin TD for Loud and East Meath. Imelda Munster.
3: Michael Reed on LMFM.
4: thanks to Mary who's texting the programme. She said, Can you ask Irish Water to restore our drinking water after a week with none? It's too much. I'm an old woman not able to avail of the water tankers. Can't take much more of this kind of living in Dunlear. It's not fair, says Mary. Thank you, Mary. You can understand the frustration that you're feeling. Uh, Irish Water did say because of the storm. Uh, it's compounded the situation uh, and it'll go on for some time, unfortunately. We have asked that Irish Water will speak to us. Uh, they are trying to make somebody available just to give us uh, an updated situation, particularly uh, on the news that we heard yesterday that there is ammonia in the River Dee. That may happen today. We expect, though, that it probably will be tomorrow. We hope that it'll be today, but uh, we'll bring you updates from Irish Water as we get them. Tony in Midloud was on the phone to us and Tony says, I'm listening to Paddy Tobin there going on about private nursing homes. Uh, they went looking to the HSE for staff to help them because they couldn't provide the service during the pandemic. Yes, they're private businesses that make profit. Yep, they are, Tony. Uh, they're healthcare for profit. Uh, there's uh, no dispute in that. But I suppose uh, when you're in an emergency and half of your staff are out of work because they've contracted the virus. You have to do something in order to protect the residents and I think uh, at this stage we all remember too vividly that that was part of the emergency that we've lived through. Liz in says I think there's a lot of questions that need to be answered in relation to how we dealt with the pandemic in our hospitals and in our nursing homes. For example, was it right that there were loved ones who died On their own because they wouldn't let family members in to see them. I think this was wrong and shouldn't have happened and shouldn't happen again. Thank you, Liz. A particularly difficult situation and a particularly horrible part of this pandemic is exactly the situation that you've outlined there. Brian says, what happened in our homes during the height of COVID was just awful, and somebody has to take responsibility for what went on. Thanks uh, for sharing those thoughts with us as well, Brian. John in Navin has been on the phone to us. I think, John, you were probably on to us yesterday, uh, and I'm not terribly surprised that you're back onto to us again today, because you make a very valid point, and I, I think... Uh, that you're probably very frustrated about it because he says uh, today he's really annoyed looking at big rotten dead trees falling onto phone and electrical wires and blocking roads which requires the ESB to come out in terrible weather conditions and repair the wires and restore electricity. Uh, He was in touch with this yesterday and he just wanted to reiterate this point. These trees are so dangerous and the council should have a responsibility to keep an eye on them to ensure that they're safe and secure as possible during high winds and big branches cut down. Thank you, John, for reiterating that point, uh, as you say, and good to hear from you, uh, and thank you for your call, and thanks to everybody who's been in touch with us so far today.
3: Michael
4: Reed on on LMFM. New research uh, which has been carried out on behalf of AWARE, the mental health charity, has said uh, that uh, the response by most of us uh, to the pandemic uh, has been one that has resulted in negative views. Uh, Those negative views have been widespread during uh, the peak of the strictest restrictions. Uh, Let's speak to Stephen McBride, who's uh, Director of Services at Aware and a very good morning to you, Stephen, and thanks indeed uh, for joining us. And I suppose we all know we're fed up with the pandemic and we all know uh, that we don't like lockdowns in particular. And we're all the more fed up when that is uh, the case. So to some degree, there's little surprise in the findings.
2: Exactly. Exactly, Michael. Yeah, this research that we commissioned and was conducted by um, the assistant professor of psychology at UCD, uh, Dr. Keith Gaynor, explore the thoughts of uh, 555 adult people uh, and their responses to the pandemic and the thoughts that they had about living in the pandemic. And as you highlighted, at the, the peak of that, between the research was conducted between uh, December 2020 and February of this year. And there was such rich and fascinating uh, findings and insights that came from, from the research, speaking to the significant psychological impact of, of the pandemic on, on us all uh, at a time of, of global threat. Threat to our uh, our health, our economic and, and uh, social safety.
4: Okay, uh, that's not necessarily a, a bad thing, isn't it? Well, it's, it may not be a positive thing. I suppose we have to recognise when things are are bad and uh, to uh, play that out uh, in our own minds as well.
2: Exactly, Michael, 100%. You know, at this time of, of global threat, it was very, it's very important to realise that negative beliefs and perhaps unhealthy thoughts are realistic, appropriate and normal and that the, uh, the sample, the 555 people who, who were researched on, on, on this, uh, all of them would have uh, spoken to that and some of the uh, insights around people saying that my life feels as though it's in suspended an- animation. I'm feeling so stuck and uh, not knowing when this will, will lift because it was right at the time, as I say, of uh, the longest lockdown. And it was very uh, normal and appropriate for people uh, in, in the sample to, uh, that, that we researched to speak to these uh, experiences. Mm. What we did notice, however, though, in both groups, we identified people in the sample who had moderate uh, or severe levels of, of depression and depressive symptoms and both groups uh, would have had equal levels of negative thoughts. Yet, uh, interestingly, those who didn't have depression were able to hold on to something positive or bring in uh, positive or healthy yeah. thoughts about. Their life situation or how things may improve.
4: And the world changed. It turned on its head upside down, if you like, in March 2020 in uh, this country, and there was good and bad to it. We'll talk about some of those positives uh, in a, a moment. Uh, but when you talk about the negatives uh, and the idea that uh, people had negative views of themselves, the world and other people. Understandable, as you say, to some degree, because there wasn't a, a lot to be happy about. Uh, but was it that some people went into depression that wouldn't have otherwise been depressed?
2: Yes, yeah, the, the research would have highlighted that as well, that people who, who felt as though that the sense of powerlessness and hopelessness within the nature of the research and would have commented on that would have uh, tipped into uh, the symptoms of moderate uh, depression on on the back of uh, living through as we all are now to this day uh, the pandemic so uh, the idea being that people who were already depressed you know were manifesting more symptoms of depression and also uh, the idea then that people would have experienced depression on the back of living through this long lockdown uh, of last winter.
4: Okay, and uh, you were also finding uh, people were feeling anxious, suffering from anxiety and stress. Uh, And again, I suppose it's easy enough to understand why uh, you're anxious watching those numbers on the television every day, stressed when you uh, walk out to go to the shop in case you catch the virus, or or stressed because you feel you can't go out to walk down to the shop or, or anything like that for that matter. 100%
2: Michael again it speaks to the idea that we we not having uh, control or a sense of choice in our lives which creates uh, a sense of of fear in and of itself the idea that we we can't exercise control of our lives which in, in effect creates anxiety because the power that we have in our life to affect control and to engage go to the shops or to go to the cinema or or to a restaurant at that time you know at mm. uh, the start of this year in late 2020 was was taken away so people were really afraid too obviously of contracting covid because of the, the impact of that of that because obviously that was a time of 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 pre-vaccination
4: uh, and Uh, a lot of of that was unavoidable or certainly some of it was uh, unavoidable because we were where we were and uh We were told uh, to behave in certain ways and our uh, liberty, as you like, was restricted to some degree. Uh, But on the other side of the coin, there was a lot of good things uh, that happened. Uh, And, uh, you know, when the world changed and turned on its head, many of us changed our behaviour and how we looked on the world and how we behaved in the world. And there was uh, a lot of good things you found uh, in uh, the people that you spoke to.
2: Exactly, exactly, Michael. You know, so in relation to the analysis of, of the research, we went one step further You know, to determine what was helpful for people, you know, and it was things like finding uh, empathy for people in their lives, you know, uh, being compassionate for people who are suffering. For example, some people referenced the situation in other countries where there mightn't have been as uh, adequate a, a health system to support people, for example. Gratitude for the positive aspects of people's own situations, whatever they may be. You know, uh, for example, uh, having um, connections with family members and friends, you know, Mm. and and developing that kind of positive, healthy uh, psychological framework by acting, you know. So an idea that kind of goes, if not against what I said a few minutes ago, but that we could do both. You know, we could hold on to the idea of being fearful of contracting COVID or fearful uh, about what life was going to be like, but also how we could develop and adapt and build resilience to be compassionate towards ourselves and mm. to others, which really uh, speaks to um, bouncing back, which is kind of the fulcrum of resilience mm. in our ability as human beings to adapt to, to life situations.
4: Mm. It brought out uh, an awful lot of good, and people, an awful lot of people did, an awful lot of good things Mm. and an awful lot of people benefited from that Uh, so we've uh, the empathy and uh, the gratitude that people were feeling Mm. and and they're positive uh, things uh, for us uh, mentally speaking
2: sure sure they are indeed michael you know so really it's this this idea of what it means to you as an individual person or to us all you know so people were able to say yeah i i felt grateful or I was able to think differently about different scenarios in my life about people I had in my life so it comes back to that central idea of of uh, connectedness within our lives you mm. know to do to loved ones family members friends work colleagues you know so uh, underlying the ability uh, of us all when we can find that positivity you know so it's important to say that there's the negativity and positivity but when we can find that positivity that it's about reaching out to those connections and forging them and fostering them in as uh, best a way as possible.
4: Mm. Yeah uh, and uh, where's launched uh, your Christmas uh, appeal uh, as part of that uh, you're saying that depression robs you of uh, the simple joys of life and that may be uh, explains the difference between the negatives and the positives uh, that we've been talking about that people experienced uh, during this pandemic. The negatives were inevitable, unavoidable for a, a lot of us but that's very different from depression. That's looking at the reality of uh, the situation. Depression can be a very serious thing uh, and uh, you may be feeling depressed during lockdown. You may also be feeling depressed when you've just won the lottery and uh, everybody's celebrating mm-hmm. at the big party afterwards and you couldn't give a, a damn because exactly, Michael. you're not enjoying life. Uh, and you just can't get it. Uh, yeah. and, and you're uh, with us this morning, I'm sure, uh, for a dual purpose. One, uh, to talk to those people who may f- be feeling depressed. Uh, and indeed, as part of your Christmas appeal, to ask our listeners to, to help people who are suffering from depression.
2: Indeed, indeed, Michael. You know, so for people who are experiencing and suffering with depression or or bipolar disorder, that's the nature and purpose of our organisation. And I would encourage people who are experiencing uh, signs and symptoms of depression or thinking and and, and feeling that that they're not themselves or something has developed in their lives and they need to reach out for support, that they can contact us on our support line between 10 a.m. and 10 p.m., um, seven days a week on 1800 80 48 48. For further information, we also have our website aware.ie, which will give you uh, a lot of information in relation to the services that we offer. And also, um, you'll be able to donate to our Christmas appeal on on our website, aware.ie. So I'd encourage anyone out there who's experiencing depression, uh, anxiety or bipolar disorder to reach out for support and also uh, to donate to us too um, if possible to to help uh, fund our, our future delivery of these services.
4: Very good. The website is aware.ie, as you say, Stephen, and uh, that uh, support line is open from 10 in the morning till 10 in the evening, seven days a week, one eight hundred eighty forty eight forty eight. 48 Thanks uh, for speaking to us uh, this morning, Stephen, and uh, for joining us on uh, the programme. Stephen McBride, Director of Services at Aware. Now, thanks uh, to Frank, who says, Hi, Michael. A-, a lot of people, including myself, think that uh, the news and the television and the talk on LMFM and other radio stations, for that matter, is very negative. It's always negative all of the time. Not good for people's mental health. Every morning, every day, we do nothing but talk about the virus. Life will go on and we will get through this virus. Thanks very much indeed, Frank, uh, for that. And you know. I think there's a a lot of truth in what you say uh, and it comes back uh, I think maybe to some degree to that conversation that we were just having about living with the reality of our our life Uh, it's not good, it is negative uh, but sometimes you have to face that reality and I suppose that's the decision we've taken and we've had to take or felt we had to take rightly or wrongly because we feel uh, as obviously other broadcasters do as you say in your message uh, that people want to know the latest about it, they want to know Uh, What the risk is to them, they want to know uh, what uh, is on the horizon in terms of uh, vaccines or viral drugs, antiviral drugs, uh, and so on and so forth, uh, and uh, what restrictions are in place, what restrictions are being lifted. And I suppose uh, as an information provider, uh, that's the type of information that we've been trying to transfer to you through this medium best we can over the last while and uh, when possible I hope uh, that we do uh, talk about other things Uh, but uh, thank you indeed Uh, I think it's a a very worthwhile comment uh, and has a a lot of merit in it I'm just not sure uh, what else we can do I think uh, to put it another way Frank we all wish it was different but it is not thus thank you for your call
3: Michael Reed on on LMFM.
4: LMFM. We're all drinking less, it seems, uh, as a result of uh, the lockdowns, uh, at least uh, since. uh, 21, there's uh, been a considerable drop in what we're drinking and the amount of people who are drinking less. uh, really is uh, quite a portion of the population of drinkers. 42% of the drinkers in the country say they're drinking less than they would have a year previously. It seems that about a third of the population don't drink, or drink very little for that matter. Binge drinking is down significantly. significantly. Just 15% of the population are, are binge drinking, and that uh, is down on uh, the previous year when uh, 28% of the population said that they would have binged drinking. That's uh, having more than two pints in one session. Uh, let's talk to Una McKinney, who's Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. A very good morning to you, Una. Thanks for joining us on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, why do you think this is the case?
8: Well, I think what this study, um, Healthy Ireland study, has looked at is it's looked at six months. It's looked at the six months between October 2020 and March 2021. And so there's a couple of observations that are on this. First is, obviously, it is significantly welcome news that we are... Uh, undoubtedly beginning to l- hear and heed a message that is perhaps you know that we should be drinking a little less and a little a little less frequently um, and that 's a positive thing you know because you know we 've spoken about this in the past about how much we do drink and the fact that we drink too much too often uh, and that has been the root of a lot of our li- illnesses and episodes in none more so than leading to three people dying every day in relation to alcohol uh, misuse. So, I mean, I think that's the first thing to say, that this is really welcome. The second thing is that, obviously, it does look at that six months from October 2020 to March 2021. That's at the heart... pretty much in, in in our COVID crisis and it came after a six month period and again you and I would have spoken a couple of times during that previous six months where we would have been saying as an organisation advocating for less alcohol use we would have been highlighting that there was significant levels of increase of sales of alcohol in the off trade and um, So Mm. what I think what we're seeing here is it's a slightly complicated picture. And I know we don't have a lot of time, but what I think what we're seeing here is a period of cooling and calming where people actually said, you know what? We've just we really did go a bit mad in that first six months of COVID when everything was shut down and everything was locked down and we brought all that alcohol into our homes. Mm. I think people I think people have responded to that. and said. But the drinks industry
4: was saying that that wasn't the case, that the sale of alcohol had dropped significantly in that time that you're talking about.
8: Yeah, but (laughs) they would say that, wouldn't they? I mean, as as, I don't know this this supports it. This supports it. As we saw, as we saw in Mm. that in that full year of 2020, alcohol sales in total dropped by about six percent. So, in actual fact, despite the fact that all on-trade premises, pubs, clubs, restaurants were closed for forty weeks in that year, Mm. we only you know the alcohol industry held on to ninety-four percent of their market. Now, you know, so what we see in this context, in this latter six-month period or three months, let's say, of 2020 Mm. and three months of 2021 is, I think, an absolute welcome sign that people are undoubtedly beginning to question and to say, listen maybe we're drinking too much here and yeah, that's a really well, Maybe they're
4: not route. going out uh, as much uh, and... Well, yes that's true too, yeah. there's another factor there's, Yeah, and like, for ma- example, ma- ma- true, maybe maybe, maybe we're not the nation of raving alcoholics, you've led us to believe we are over a long period of time which is why alcohol wow, should be so right. expensive, I mean you look at it, just 15% No, 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 15... no, no, no. I've, never, I've
8: never accused anybody of being
4: raving Well, alcoholics. just 15% but of I, the population I
8: have said that as a nation we drink too much too often and and that is reflected in the fact that three people a day die because
4: well, of alcohol. a rich. third, a third of us don't drink, uh, or very rarely. Uh, certainly, a, a third of us haven't had a drink in the last six months. In that
8: six months.
4: In, in the, the last six months. It, yeah. yeah, yeah. In, in six yeah. months, they no alcohol at all. So, <laughs>
8: in the middle of a pandemic. Yeah, yeah, and all the pubs were largely closed.
4: The rest uh, said. Yeah. So
8: we do have to, we, we, you know, we do have to be, you know, reflective of when this was actually undertaken.
4: fifteen percent of people say that they binge drink uh, when uh-huh. when they're drinking. That's just fifteen percent of the population, and you're saying it should be two euro for a can of beer because of the fifteen percent that have more than two cans.
8: No, what I'm saying is that it should be 170 potentially for mm. a can of beer of 500 millilitres. And that is in the context of trying to ensure that we get a little bit less drunk over the period of a year. And that's why it targets a certain particular uh, cohort of the heaviest. But
4: 85, we know. 85% of us aren't getting drunk at all.
8: Well no, that's not that, that that's not actually true. This okay. is only in the context of the six months of what you're looking at yeah, in terms of Healthy Ireland. T-
4: typically typically when typically, we typically when we not. drink, eighty five percent of us don't get drunk. Fifty yeah, percent
8: typical. This isn't typical, Mike. This is in the middle of a pandemic and all the pubs are have largely been closed. I, I don't so know. it's not it's not it's not a typical sample. It is a snapshot and Healthy Ireland have Ca- categorizes in that context because they talk consistently about the server in p- a period of necessary COVID-19 restrictions. Yeah, the same so period that you
4: said people were bringing happy. home bottles of vodka and drinking them by they the were. jug load. They but but 15, just months. 85% of people in this six months, uh, when they drink, typically don't get drunk. That doesn't make the argument to make them pay a fortune for alcohol.
8: No, but it's not paying a fortune for it at all. That's the whole point. What minimum unit pricing will do when it comes in the 4th of January is it will ensure that those cheap, strong products cannot be sold beneath a certain price. So your typical bottle of vodka, which is available for 13, 14 euros in the supermarket currently, won't be
4: able to be sold for that price. It'll be what, 21 but the, euro or something. It'll
8: be 21 euro. <laughs> but, the people, the people, but the people who continue to buy your average brand of vodka, your so, average brand... So instead
4: of, 20, of paying 14 euro uh, for your bottle of vodka uh, that you might have one or two of every now and then, <laughs> you have to pay 21 euro. Where's the sense in that?
8: The sense in that is about trying to ensure that people would drink a little less in normal times. That's what it's about. But and 85% of people will, will.
4: don't have a problem. That's what this uh, clearly no, says. Mike, no,
8: no, no, I think you've been slightly disingenuous. I think what it's saying is that 15% of the people in that period of COVID between mm. October 2020 and March 2021 took steps to reduce their alcohol use because I'm suggesting is that in the previous six months, as you and I discussed, Mm, mm. when we highlighted that off-trade sales had increased by up to 90%, that we have seen an adjustment. And I think the serious Mm -hmm. question has to be asked is how can we now sustain this helpful pattern? How can we ensure that people might continue in this. And I think there are tentative signs of Mm. improvement of people's awareness around the risk, around the harm. And that's a really positive thing that's happened here. Let's see if I I can what uh, we need to do uh, is try and is really capture that I
4: I, I don't know if I can help you to make your argument, but that figure of fifteen percent is from the entire population. But of course a third of the population don't drink. So when you take the percentage of drinkers who binge drink on a typical drinking occasion, and that would mean somebody having three pints, let's say, or two and a half pints. Three pints. Uh, three, three, pints. three pints. Okay, yeah. that goes to 22%. So you're still talking about 78% of the population really just having a social drink. Yeah. Uh, it's hardly an argument to be putting all of this tax on it.
8: Well, it's not tax for a start. It just puts a ceiling or a floor in relation to what the price can be sold beneath. There's no tax co- collectors about it at all. But again, I go back to the point, in that period off when this survey was done, the actual COVID restrictions were ensuring two things. One, largely people weren't going to pubs. And two, people weren't mixing. They weren't allowed to mix. They weren't allowed to gather in homes, etc. And so we have a situation where the whole dynamics of social interaction around alcohol was been deprived of people because of COVID. And that's what has largely driven this to some degree. Mm. But I do think at a positive level is I think people have actually taken a significant step to say, we drank way too much in the beginning of COVID and that's, that was proven and that was outlined in previous studies that the CSO had done uh, in that period, that first opening period of the six months and I think people have adjusted the behaviour to say listen we can't continue on this level of alcohol use in the home and we need to stop or we need to reflect and say where do we, where can we make some changes in our lives and I think that's what we're seeing here. Now What what the point I'm trying to make is that from a a point moving forward when we know in normal times we drink as heavily as we do. And hopefully, please God, at some stage we will get back to normal times. What do we need to do to sustain this? What do we need to know now to make sure that people are carrying that message around the harm, around the risk, and adjusting their behaviour to get us to a point, perhaps, as you say... Where only 20 22 percent or 30 percent or whatever mm-hmm. the figure will be are only binge drinking and I think that will be really a positive development and some of the measures that are contained but, like but, minimum unit pricing mm, I think you, are beginning to are beginning to are beginning to work you know but
4: are, are you saying that when we um, get back to normal and we can drink in the pubs as normal and we're paying full pub price, that will, mm. that will start binge drinking again when it's more expensive than the takeaway stuff that you want to increase the price on, we will we'll, we'll, we'll start drinking more when it's more expensive?
8: I think that's true, yeah. I think that is, <laughs> okay. I, I, I have no doubt mm. that the mm. third of the people who drink their alcohol, you know, about a third of what we drink in normal times is drunk in pubs and I think mm. there's no question that, that people will return to doing that. The question is, will they return to doing it as much? Mm. Um, that's the point. But um, if, I if think it's more what expensive saying, than pubs... What I'm trying to say mm. is that You know, what we're maybe learning out of this study is, again, that there is a period of reflection, a period of calm Mm. that maybe people are reflecting. But are we not learning
4: then, um, based on what you just said, are we not learning that price makes no difference? uh, That if we go back to the situation where it's more expensive, people will drink more is what you're saying.
8: No, because the 65% of what we drink, two thirds of what we drink, we purchase in the off trade, in the supermarkets and in the convenience stores. Mm. And price is a significant factor there. Okay, that's the reality and so what we're trying to do with minimum unit pricing it's a lot bit, cheaper
4: and, and, and our, it, consumption our consumption has dropped our consumption has dropped it's yes. cheaper and we're drinking less uh, when it gets more expensive we want to drink more it's hard to understand how you no, can well, no, link it to increasing we, see, prices there's a,
8: there's, a, there's a different dynamic for the third of people who drink in pubs because people want to socialise people want to go for a night nice. mm. there's a whole set of other factors that are involved in consuming alcohol in a non-trade but in terms of the 65% or two-thirds of the alcohol that we use at home, the main driver of that, I would argue, is price. And so minimum unit pricing is endeavouring to try and make a small dent in that market to say, listen, if we can bring down the level of alcohol use by 7 or 8% in that market, we will see better public health outcomes. And again, this is all about trying to ensure okay. that we move to a point where we drink little less and a little
4: less often. Okay, well, there's been a, an improvement, no doubt, uh, in terms of uh, what we are consuming uh, and uh, undoubtedly that will feed into better public health and uh, perhaps uh, people will consider all of that and uh, drink responsibly. We'll leave it there for the moment though, Eunan. thanks as always thanks, for joining Mike. us. Thank you very much. Una McKinney, Head of Communications and Advocacy with Alcohol Action Ireland. Michael Reed on
3: LMFM. On LMFM.
4: Now the government is proposing a lot of change in how we provide child care transformational reform is how the Minister for Children Roderick O'Gorman is describing these changes and amongst them would be an upskilling of those who work in child care that they would have higher education qualifications and that it would be a graduate-led workforce by 2028 and alongside that there would also be an employment regulation order which would mean that uh, they would uh, be subject uh, to uh, different pay scales as a result of those qualifications and the government is intending to invest uh, to move the model to a publicly funded Uh, and managed hybrid model from what is essentially a private model at the moment. And the government also says that it it will see annual investment in childcare rise to a billion euro within six years. This has been welcomed by the trade unions, but Childhood Services Ireland and uh, the IBEC Trade Association says it's leaving them in an impossible situation. Let's find out why. Dara Whelan is the Director of Childhood services ireland and a uh, very good morning to you dara and thank you indeed uh, for joining us on the program this morning uh, what is uh, the problem you find with these proposals
1: good morning michael I, I think you've summed up the the situation of this reform pretty well and um, this is the largest reform the sector has ever seen and i have had tip to the department of children here there's a lot of work that has gone into these uh these reports around the funding model and the workforce development piece um but it is relatively difficult, if I could give the analogy to you about a child sitting on a stool and that stool has three legs and each leg of the stool represents one for the provider, one for the staff member and one for the parents. Now, all three of those have funding needs or funding requirements. But if you were to increase one leg of the stool, it creates an un- unsteady situation and the child could fall, resulting in better, worse outcomes for, for the children. Similarly, if you decrease the funding for one leg of the stool, it similarly becomes unsteady as well. So with the funding model that has been announced yesterday, there are some, lots of good things in there. The, the movement towards a billion euro for funding for the sector is very, very good but there's very little in it for the provider. So using that stool analogy, there's an ERO, an employment regulation order, coming down the line for staff, which is to increase wages. That's very much to be welcomed as well. But at the same time, there is affordability measures being taken to to cap the the, the fees for parents, which is welcome for parents because they, they should ideally be paying less. But there's nothing in this for providers so what they're doing is increasing the legs of two of the stools but ignoring the third one and that's going to create an unsteady situation so the waiting lists for childcare are currently 12 months approximately one one amusing anecdote i heard was a lady from denmark was planning to to move to ireland with her family and she contacted a childcare provider in the north of Dublin to say, "Well, I'm three months pregnant, and I would like to avail of childcare when I get there in the next few months. Should I go on the waiting list?" And the childcare provider said, "Absolutely." And then she said to, to, the, to the provider, "I also have a friend in Denmark who's moving to Ireland. She's thinking about getting pregnant. Should she go on the waiting list?" Uh, this is preposterous. So women who aren't even yet pregnant are considering putting themselves down on, on the waiting list for childcare. And this is a serious supply issue here.
4: So mm. we I, can't, I, can't, I can't imagine what the Danish women thought of that uh, because you wouldn't have any problems of that sort in Denmark uh, because childcare is state-run, state-funded and readily available to people.
1: Yeah, to, to an extent. So Ireland is relatively unique in that we're a 100% private sector. And if you were to look at our European counterparts, you'll find that they have large public sector involvement, you know, 50 or 60 or even higher percentage of public sector state-run facilities, but it's always uh, bolstered by a hybrid model of, of private sector as well. But places like Denmark and the Scandinavian and other European countries mm. do invest a lot more. We're about 0.3 of, of GDP. That's going to increase to about 0.5, but it's still well below what the OECD average it, it should be and what UNICEF at 1% of GDP. Um, mm. But it's going But people, right pay, people
4: pay for it in taxes. The state provides the money and there's no profit as such uh, not uh, in comparison to the kind of profits that are made here.
1: Are you referring to Denmark the Scandinavian countries?
3: Mm.
4: Yes.
1: Well there are the the private services the private sector they absolutely do make a profit so there there would be no difference in that regard here. Uh, The vast like the 4,600 services in Ireland the majority of them are are, are just about getting by there are some services that can avail of uh, economies of scale that enable them to make a profit but that's not the, the majority out there in any shape or form. So we're going to see what I believe is a stunting in the childcare in growth in the sector at a time when we really should be expanding services as much as possible. So one of the reports was called partnership with the public good. So Mm. public good is referring to the the, the childcare being a public good, which we do not deny. It certainly is. It should be available to the the most amount of children possible and the most amount of families possible. But the partnership piece is an interesting one because the government have no intention of nationalising the sector. I mean, it's 100% private sector. It's impossible to to, uh, unwind that, unravel that. go back in time, essentially, to a time when the state, or or when there was no private sector in childcare whatsoever. But the partnership is is unusual, because it's not quite clear what that means. Now, the state will have greater involvement with funding the sector, but they certainly won't be coming in to manage it or take it over. So it's sort of a marriage of convenience for for the state, Mm. but for for providers, as they they see there's nothing really in it for them, it's more like a shotgun wedding.
4: So where's the solution, do you think? Uh, Because parents are are paying what... Many of them would consider to be extortionate fees, uh, uh, yeah. more than they can earn themselves if they were to go uh, out to work. Uh, in some circumstances, so some people yeah. actually decide to stay home because they can't afford childcare. Uh, really good point. Yeah. So look, yeah. uh, and, the, and st- the, the the staff are generally speaking very low paid. Uh, so so where's the solution in all of this?
1: Yeah. So on those two points there. The, the average household expenditure is about 20% of average income. So bottom line there, that's too high. Parents should not be paying that amount. And and the key cause of of that expenditure is the lack of universal subsidies going to parents. The, the subsidies is the money that is contributing towards your, your fees, your, your childcare fees. So that's way too low. It's 50 cents an hour in Ireland and that should be way over, about two euro or even higher, um, which will really make a dent in how much the the parent has to pay. And for staff as well, There has been increases over the last number of years, over 3%. So it's above the national average in increase in pay. But these are graduates. We're moving towards a graduate-led workforce. So we need to recognise the benefits and the skills and the quality that they have. The wages do have to improve. But here's the conundrum. If we want to improve our wages for for staff we will then have to increase our fees to cover that, that cost. So there has to be state intervention there. And if I go back to the, the analogy yep. of the three-legged stool, let's look at universal subsidies and improve that for parents. Let's also look at, get the JLC to improve the rates of pay for the ERO, but without undermining sustainability for providers. So we need to be able to create a situation where providers can grow the sector because demand is extremely high. As I said, the waiting list are 12 months. And if you improve subsidies for parents, All that's going to do is serve to to make the waiting list even longer. So there's no point in looking at universal subsidies unless you grow the sector in itself. And you're not going to do that if you take the income away from providers.
4: Dara, thanks for talking to us. Good to talk to you. That's Dara Whelan, who's uh, the Director of Childhood Services Ireland.
3: Michael
4: Michael Reed on LMFM Gardaí are appealing for information on a firearm uh, being uh, discharged on Saturday evening let's speak uh, to local councillor Sinn Féin's Kevin Meenan good morning to you and thanks uh, for joining us Uh, it's not unusual for us to be talking about uh, gunshots in More Heaven and More uh, but that's uh, exactly why you're with us uh, again today Kevin, what do you know about this?
6: Uh, thanks, Michael, for having me on. And yeah, I thought to say myself, it's it's all too a regular occurrence now that I, I'm on here talking about it, or a, a gunshot fired through a house or 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 some type of attack on the house. Yeah, but we're we're not too sure at the moment. Uh, talking to people on the ground and talking to, listening uh, to neighbors as well. It, there was a number of incidents over the weekend. It wasn't just that; there was a, a house was attacked as well, and there was also uh, I believe there was a fight. Not sure if any of these are connected, but uh, it is a bit of a coincidence. But uh, the, the street that it happened on is one of the original streets that was first built in Meathenmore. So you'd have a, lo- a lot of long-term, long-standing residents who live there, who are elderly, who are quite shocked at this as well. Mm.
4: And, uh, this it, is Villas Two run, Drive One area of more and Tom Bellew Avenue.
6: Yes, and yeah, it's, in, in the, yeah it's, it's the very bottom end of more so it borders onto the Avenue Road. Uh, as it says it would have been one of the original it's part mm. of the state that was built first. So as I say, you have a lot of long-term residents who've been there from from uh, day one, mm. and uh, it's, it's quite shocking for them. I'm sure and it is. Uh, as, I, as yeah. I say, they're worried there could have been the wrong house if it was meant to be for somebody else, or you know, somebody else could be could be attacked. And um, and it's only a matter of time, unfortunately, that I'll probably be on here talking about fatality. Yeah. If these keep going the way they are going, what did do they
4: do? Sh- sh- shoot a window through, or what was try, it
6: at, at the front door? So oh, at the front uh, door, right? Yeah, yeah. At, at the front door. So as I say, it it there could be a child stand behind that. they, they, you, they don't know who's there, are doing. So I, I, again, it's, it's probably only a matter of time. Unfortunately, mm. uh, sadly, to predict that this will turn into something more fatal. Uh, I, I spoke to the guards, I spoke to Deputy Maruka who spoke to the, the superintendent as well, and we we, we need to sort of try and get a hold of this because all too often rows are now being sorted out with a shotgun. Mm. And uh, or attacking a the house or a petrol bomb, and uh, we need to get grips of this. I, yeah. I, a lot of it's being fueled by drugs as well. I'm not sure if this is if this is uh, in this case what happened here. It's but
4: usually the case. Uh, was it a yeah. shotgun that was used this time round?
6: Yeah, it was a shotgun that uh-huh. was used. And,
4: uh, uh, I take uh, the it, bullet. Uh, I take it the bullet went through the door. Did it?
6: As far as I'm aware, it, yeah. it, it 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 did, but I can't I can't confirm. It definitely
4: would have the capacity yeah. to do it. And if you fire a shotgun at uh, somebody's front door, uh, you shouldn't be terribly surprised if there is somebody behind it, and you end up hitting them. And God knows. Yeah, and
6: and and uh, as I say, this is uh, sadly this will this will be the case. I would imagine. And, and, Uh, Not to the not to distant future that somebody will be seriously injured with a shotgun blast because the fire out through a window or. People could be sleeping downstairs. They, 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 they simply don't know. And this was early in the evening as well. It's not as if it's fired at 3 o'clock in the morning to go through a front door where there, was, there would be a reasonable chance nobody would be there. There would have been a fair chance somebody would have been there. Yeah. And, uh, Half eight, eight
4: on a Saturday the evening. Off the yeah. Half eight on a Saturday evening in a, a residential area of uh, Dundalk. We'll ask anybody if they have information uh, to contact uh, the Guardian in Dundalk or if they're a bit concerned about their own safety in, in doing that. There's uh, the guard Confidential line, uh, where you can give information to the Gardaí confidentially. Tell them whatever it is you know confidentially. As I say, and that number is one eight hundred treble six treble one one eight hundred treble six treble one. Kevin, thank you as always for joining us uh, this morning. Kevin Mean is uh, Sinn Féin councillor on Louth County Council. Now we stay in County Louth, and the thousands of people who are without drinking water in Mid Louth because uh, the do not consume water notice is in place and remains in place uh, for those who are on the Greenmount public water supply and uh, let's talk now to Michael Conniff who's uh, the regional operations lead with Irish Water. Very good morning to you Michael and thank you indeed uh, for joining us I I take it the efforts to restore drinking water are hampered by the storm. Have you uh, any indication of when you may be able to supply, uh, to to restore the supply?
9: Uh, Good morning Michael thank you for having me on um, we're not. It's, we kind of be conclusive about uh, when the notice can be lifted just at the moment, but um, we're working hard that are on the site and uh, getting a full set of water water quality results. And um, we'll be back in consultation with the HSC to lift the notice as quickly and as safely as we can do. So,
4: okay, in, addition,
9: and- in relation to the storm, um, we had to suspend our alternative water uh, supply locations there yesterday, just for just until yesterday evening. And that is resumed again today, and will continue continue on that base.
4: Okay. Uh, the source of uh, the problem is pollution. Is it in uh, the River Dee, uh, this escalated level of ammonia? Have you any idea where that's coming from?
9: Um, again, the source of the elevated ammonia in the River Dee, it's not been clearly identified. Um, we have no reports of slur- slurry spreading or any other direct discharges in the river, but uh, loud County Council, the Environmental Section and in Inland Fisheries, Ireland Bay, they're made aware of the issue and they're investigating. But the daily ammonia readings uh, that are in the raw water, we take those daily just to monitor the situation and we have seen a decrease in those initial high levels. And uh, as I said, we have a full set of the network investigating sample results and that will inform the next steps in consultation with the HSE. But um, going on the information we know now, and um, I I would say that
4: we would try to lift it as soon as possible. Okay. It's not naturally occurring, though, I gather. Uh, Am I right in thinking that somebody um, somebody is dumping something into the river?
9: There's a a potential indicator of that, but there would be background levels of ammonia in the water, and there would be, at different times in the year, there would be possibly small, elevated levels, but not to the extent that we're seeing, and that would indicate that it's a possible pollution issue, but we, we can't be definitive at this time. The plant with normal background levels and with lesser concentrations, the plant will be well able to handle that type of situation. Unfortunately, with with such a high level in it, the plant was not on the fail safe, kick in and the plant automatically shuts down. However, in order to maintain process water or water in the supply, um, we've had to put in the do not consume, but still supply process water, as I would call it, for for day to day activity, but not for consumption purposes.
4: Okay, and uh, would there be a typical source for that type of pollution? Uh, you mentioned spreading slurry, slurry uh, but could it be fuel laundering?
9: Um, I could not say. Normally, ammonia would be a more organic based type substance, so I, I would say um, a more organic type, maybe, of pollution would be. Indicator, but uh, I, I I could I couldn't say that
4: that would be the case. No. Okay, uh, and as a result of uh, the ammonia, you're uh, not able to treat the water, uh, and that makes the water dangerous for consumption uh, because there could be all kinds of bugs, including E. coli, I- I- in uh, the water, despite it coming out of the tap and probably looking okay.
9: Yeah, I, I, it's the issue it, it compromises the disinfection process of of the overall water treatment, so. What ammonia does is that it reacts with our disinfection uh, process, so that can that can mask maybe other potential bugs, as you say, E. coli, or uh, other type of things that can get through the plant. So the disinfection process that's in the plant um, that retains what's known as a residual chlorine level within the network, and that's what uh, maintains the water being disinfected as it goes to the customer taps. Once you once that is compromised or it's below. The required levels of the drinking water regulations. That's when you would have an issue with with security of, of supply from a public health
4: perspective, and, and that's
9: what we aim, aim to protect.
4: And it should be avoided for everything: brushing your teeth, uh, giving water to your pet dog or animal, or, or feeding your chickens, for that matter.
9: Um, that 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 would be the advice that we, to do that consume. And as the advice that we've given out, it would it would, it would capture a lot of those issues. But again particularly with pets if you wanted to consult with their, with their uh, veterinary clinic they may advise further but
4: I'll be doing a consumer that as as All right Michael we leave it there thank you very much for joining us it's much appreciated uh, and hopefully as you say the water will be resumed uh, in uh, the near future. Michael Kniff Regional Operations Lead with Irish Water brings our programme to its conclusion God willing we'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am on LMFM Good morning, bye bye.
3: The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Mother's Day is around the corner. Find the perfect gift for the mom in your life with a stunning piece of jewelry from Blue Nile. From timeless pearls to dazzling gemstones, Blue Nile has something she'll adore. Need it fast? Most items can ship overnight.